Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. And I know that maybe logically, you know, like the density of memory when you're going through trauma as well, it might have only been five to 10 minutes, but in reality, it feels like hours. I just remember more than anything, like I kind of woke up with his like flaccid penis in my mouth and I couldn't like, I just remember kind of moving my head and realizing that I was on carpet and I got all of these like carpet burns on the backs of my like elbows. So his partner, comes to the balustrade and looks down and sees what's happening and she yells at him and that's what gave me that big shock. Hey survivors, this is part two of our two-part episode with Madeline Heather. Please stay tuned to the end of the episode where Madeline reveals information that she received via a Freedom of Information Act request regarding her case. We hope you enjoy the rest of this episode of The Survivor Squad. And then I went home and I started to try and, I guess, find a new life in this new normal. My family wasn't one that really spoke about this. In fact, like my brother never knew, my younger brother never knew. Not until like I started my own podcast did he know what had happened. And um, he he felt felt really bad. He's like, I know that you're going through stuff, but I just thought it was like puberty. <laughs> like, it's like I didn't realize <laughs> you were being weird. <laughs> He's like, I just thought it was girl stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Girls have a hard time, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we never ever spoke about it. Like, and I think that's as well something that I'm trying to change by um doing this. But he you know, we did. We never really spoke about it. My mum kind of dealt with everything with the police and stuff. There was a few times that the detectives came back um, and would ask additional questions and all of that. Eventually um, it did go to court. Um, it was adjourned I think three or four times and he was not remanded in custody while this was going on. He was just out living his life Um he did get sentenced, he, but he was he pled guilty to a lesser charge. So he pled guilty to a count. I think he was guilty of three counts, and they were basically called penetration of a child under the age of 16. So in Melbourne, the, the, I think the different states have different things, but 16 and above is the age of consent. But, yeah, as, as a 14-year-old, I think it was below the age of 16 was that bracket. So there were three charges of that. Um, and he was sentenced to two years in prison total. And, um, yeah, I think that was basically all I heard. I think when he came out, I wasn't really – this is one of the reasons I left my hometown, actually, because when he came out, I didn't really have any rights to get a restraining order. I had no rights to anything. So, yeah, I'd seen him, like, at a local cafe, and I was like – well, I'm out. <laughs> like, so yeah, I'm leaving the town. Um, I do believe that he ended up moving away as well. Um, I'm not sure. I know that he's back in the area now, but 
Yeah, I, I do know that the reason that this is something that frustrates me as well that I, I, I talk about a bit too is that he pled guilty to a lesser charge because the police, they really did not want me to go through with having to go on the stand. And the reason was because I had lied. So when everything happened in the initial statements that I had made, they said, did he have sex with you? Like what, what happened? And I said, he might have. And I said that because as a naive 14-year-old who's drunk, I, number one, I don't know the importance of what I'm doing right now, like in giving a statement. Also, statement under the influence as well, by the way. But I had said that I believe because it was my friend's dad. Like somehow I knew that he was going to get in trouble or she was going to lose her dad or something. And the innocence of my mind going like, oh, maybe – I'll just say he might have so that it's kind of going like just to put it away. And I was trying to protect my friend. And that's why. The other thing is that there was no semen present. I think it's also just like, yeah, just being like someone talking you through it kind of thing. And I know that they can't, they can't a lot of things, but I I always say this, I work in um, different policy and government spaces now as a formal job. And I always just laugh and say, can we just please have a common sense clause. Like we've got policies, we've got rules. If we could also just have a sub clause somewhere there that says like, please overlay this with general common sense when applying this rule. Like I understand, but can you also be a little bit kind? And I think this would be a space maybe where um, an advocate or something would be really wonderful to be present. Not only would they be trained enough to say, you know, maybe the 14 year old in a bra in a police station might want a blanket and something fresh to wear, but, you know, they might be able to give you the information about the implications of what you're doing at this stage or advocate for you to not be interviewed formally under the influence of alcohol. I think my police report said that my blood alcohol level was 0.08, I think, at this time, which is like the legal driving limit kind of thing in some states. But remember, this is maybe three hours after I've had a last drink. Like I've vomited. I've had the assault happen. I've gone back to the police station. I've driven 45 minutes into the hospital and then I've had a test done. Like how high must it have been at that time to have that much time pass as well? Like that's quite a high level to have at that stage. And yeah, the reason as well that he pled guilty was because uh, if to that charge and why they didn't seek the higher charge was because there was no semen. So he's like his penis and everything was swabbed as well and it had my DNA on it, but they couldn't prove where it was from. And my D- so my DNA was all over him, his DNA was all over me, but they couldn't prove where it had come from. And in the state that I live in, um, the penile penetration, I think at this time, was the high account of rape. Um, in, in Victoria, I think that rape is one count and sexual assault is another. In like indecent sexual assault is another kind of uh, crime. In the state of New South Wales, I believe they are one crime. And I think that they define it under the criminal code as any penetration to a body cavity made by a body part or manipulated by a body part. That's what that code is. Ours was different, I think, at this time as well. So the lesser charge is to say that penile penetration is worse. Um And they could not prove that. I had made a statement early on as a 14-year-old that said he may have and therefore he pled guilty to a charge that meant he only got two years 
obviously he was out earlier. Um, yeah, and that was it was quite disappointing, I think, for myself. And I try and say really positively and be like, you know, I'm I'm lucky. I had a median intervention. I got justice. I never had to testify. He pled guilty. Like that's less than way less than one percent of cases of people that that ever happens to especially having people believe you immediately as a child as well. So I am, but I just think it's crazy that somebody who is a child sex offender, who's got that much evidence against them, who's also been plying me with alcohol, like where's the additional charges that are being laid on top of this guy over and over and over again so we can get him away for as long as possible. And none of that really happened. And I think that's quite frustrating. I mean, I I know that, in Oz, a like DUI is a no joke. You know, I mean, I, I spent most of my time in NSW, right? So I just rem- remember it was like, you know, right after you know, New Year and they were tossing a car and there was like two kids in the car and they were, mom was taking the test and I was just like, wow, you know, they're not playing any games. So it's so odd that, you know, DUI is such a massive offense, but giving a child <laughs> giving an underage person alcohol <laughs> to commit an assault is just where, yeah, where was that charge? Yeah. I think it's the perfect example that everything was laid out. The evidence and everything was laid out for them. And then this person still gets away within how many months or how much time was he in there for? I think, I think he got two years. Uh, that was the sentence. And I think he spent 18 months in prison. Yeah. So it's like, you know, everything was laid out and then he gets 18 months and then he's able to what do it again to another girl. How long did it how long was the trial? Like, how long was it from when this occurred to when he was convicted? Years? I think it was a year between that and the because there's a number of trials that they have to go through, like a number of court hearings that you've got. I think you've got something to take to determine whether or not it's going to go to a trial. Um, but again, like through this whole process, I wasn't really involved. Like because I was a child, my mum was doing all of this kind of on my behalf and they made these decisions without me as well. Um, I think it was at least a year between the first one and that was whether I think he was going to be remanded in custody or not after the charges were fully laid by the police um, and he wasn't. Then there was a number of adjournments that had occurred So I think that was at least maybe six months or a year later until the plea had finally gone through. He'd pled guilty, they'd accepted it, and they took him off to jail. So it's quite a long period of time. And in that meantime, uh, him and his partner stayed together and they had another baby. Because, you know, let's procreate when something bad happens. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, babies fix everything, right? That is crazy. How is it? to take your power back now and to tell your story now. Yeah, I think he is like, it's, it's been a really big journey. And I think post Me Too, it's very different. So at school and stuff, when I had gone back to school and everything, I was almost famous. I mean, this isn't the smallest town, but it is a pretty small town. Like everyone knows everybody. You can't go down the shops without at least seeing a few people that you know kind of thing. Everybody kind of knew and there was like one of the worst things in the years after was the fact that a lot of parents wouldn't let their kids hang out with me anymore. Like the friends that I had, if they, I had a birthday party or something to go to, I wasn't allowed to sleep over. They would call me things like a hussy. Like 
I was being blamed for being a bad influence. I was being blamed for having drank. And then I think, honestly, some of these mothers thought that I was somehow going to come in and steal their husbands away from them. Like it was my fault. So post Me Too, I think there's been a lot of community education. I think there's been a lot of things. And I think there are a lot of people that have reflected on their own actions and thought maybe that's a completely ridiculous response that I had during that time. Um And I think since that, that's given me kind of the permission to start the podcast, to start sharing my story and to start speaking openly about things like having lied to the police or, you know, different things like that. People made these assumptions and there was always these rumours going around that I'd lied and that I had somehow managed to do this because poor little white girl cries wolf and everybody kind of comes. And there was a lot of these tropes that were going around and I think when I did actually get to share my story in full, so many people listened to it. I know that it went around that entire community. Finally, they get the scoop kind of about what happened. And when they hear that, like, actually there was an entire court case, you can't just send somebody to prison without any skerrick of of anything. Like, less than 1% of cases go through. Do you think that they're really going to charge this guy without anything? Anyway, like, I think when they'd heard the amount of information that I had and how true it was, suddenly the tide started to change and it wasn't my fault anymore. But that's 10, over 10, 15 years later. And it's just not, it's pretty sickening, I think as well. Like I couldn't imagine, like looking back at myself now, 15 years later, thinking how young 14 is, like I could never have that response to a child. But again, I mean, a different time maybe. Well, I think that people can be very selfish at times and they want to blame someone, at least in my case, like I had friends that didn't believe me, didn't believe that like this guy came after me. They called me crazy and whatnot. And I think that that is kind of a secondary trauma after the fact that you went through this event and then now you're not being validated by anyone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we share, we heal. And, you know, if you share and you share something like you lied about it, for example, somebody's listening to this now going, I lied to somebody about it. Whether they've just denied it or whether they've minimized it or something, it gives people permission to kind of go, okay, maybe I'm not the only one. And it's not crazy to do that when you're navigating these spaces to try and make it stop and try and make it go away and thinking that you can just deal with it on your own. It's a normal response. So I think things like that are incredibly important. It's also it's also very interesting when you think about it in terms of legality, like so they're going to say, oh, well, you lied, so we couldn't pursue this. But then so they'll take your word on some things and then they won't take your word on another. It's very selective on what they decide to pull for the case. Right. And that also is infuriating because it's like, well, either you discount all of it or you, or you believe all of it. You know what I mean? There's no, it's, there isn't, you, you get to pick and choose, you know? And I feel like that is very common in sexual assault cases for sure, especially with children. I mean, that's my experience. Hi survivors. I want to take a break to tell you about our friends over at Navigating Advocacy Podcast. It is a true crime podcast that seeks to use the power of storytelling to raise awareness about unsolved crimes and bring justice to victims and their families through action-oriented advocacy. 
hosted by Melissa and Whitney, who themselves started as true crime enthusiasts and have since become passionate advocates. Their podcast aims to inspire action and promote positive change in the criminal justice system. Their mission is to provide a platform for victims and their families to share their stories and be heard while offering practical guidance on how listeners can make a difference in their communities. In each episode, they explore a different unsolved case in depth, highlighting key details and potential leads in an effort to spark new interest and help advance the investigation. Through their work, they hope to create a community of like-minded individuals who are committed to making a real difference in the fight for justice. Whether you are a seasoned true crime fan or a newcomer to the genre, go and check out our friends over at Navigating Advocacy. Absolutely, 100%. And it's one of those things as well, I think, where, you know, that perfect victim trope as well, where they think that you're going to have this memory and it's going to be in a sequential order that you're going to have things. And each time they ask you questions, you might have different information. And that does not mean that you're lying. It means that different things are coming back to you, especially if you've come back from some kind of intoxication. Like I think most people have had a hangover of some sort in their lives. And then you have that moment where you go, oh my God, and you remember something embarrassing from the night before. Like if you understand that, then you can understand that people's memory. I never did that. No, never did that. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I've done that way too many times. <laughs> oh, so many. Did I tell that guy I liked him? Like <laughs> the text message, like, oh my God. Or what did I talk about with that person for 45 minutes? I don't remember any. Oh, forget it. You know what I would do? I would go back and delete them. So they'd never happened. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the best way. Just yeah, completely delete it, delete and deny. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, never. Okay. <laughs> never happened. <laughs> so obviously, you started this podcast. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that that process? And does that feel like? I mean, I know you touched upon it earlier, but does that feel like you're? I mean, for me, it felt it feels like something. I think for Tara, it feels like something to f that extra point of pride, but also that extra point of healing. And share by sharing your journey. Yeah, absolutely. It does. Um, so I, I started a podcast called Reclaim Me. Um, and the title is really about reclaiming the narrative, reclaiming your voice and reclaiming control. And it was post me too. It was, um, you know, COVID. Um, and I'd started to share little tidbits, I think about my own story. And I had such an incredible response from people all over the world where they'd reached out to me via social media and shared things like, especially there was actually quite a lot of guys that had shared with me things that they've been through. Um, and they've like, I've never, I've never told anybody, blah, blah, blah. And it was just, I kept having the same conversation over and over and over again. And I thought if we could provide a platform where people can share their stories in full and potentially do it anonymously if they want to, um, then we'd be doing a service to a lot of people because all of these people who are messaging me needed to hear everybody else's story. I think it was incredibly validating for a lot of people at that time to kind of go through this experience of Me Too and have it really on the public platform and talk about it. So um, I decided to share my story first and I think that was a really healing thing to do. I recorded one at once and then I was like, that is terrible. <laughs> so I learned, you know, <laughs> and I did. I re-recorded it and I um I posted it and, you know, it, ever since then it's just been a consistent journey and I think, you know, I have people emailing me or messaging me every single day that are victim survivors of crime and um, they share their stories in many different ways and it doesn't have to be a sexual assault to be validating, to be validated that 
something horrible happened to you or to be like you call it like in a room where something horrible has happened to somebody else like that's still a trauma on you and a lot of this that we explore with these victim survivors who come on board um is literally being having the discussion that they don't feel like theirs was bad enough a lot of people are like oh i would love to come on but like mine's not bad enough and I just, you know, through that even discussion of maybe having a chat with them about the fact that theirs is bad enough, <laughs> any story is worth telling. Um, and, you know, there's there's a woman, uh, Anna, who came onto my podcast a while back and she's currently going through court proceedings for stealthing, um, which is when you um, unknowingly remove um, a condom when you're having sex with somebody without their consent. That's not consent. It's a consent violation that is sexual assault. Um and through that, so many people have generated like discussions about it having happened to them. And it's been such a wonderful thing for the community. Um, that, And it's a new law. It's a new thing that they're exploring. And I think it's a wonderful thing that we can provide everybody with a an uncensored, unfiltered, unedited in many ways platform to share their stories. I mean, Terry, you've told your story so many times as well. How many times, like, have you been able to have full edit rights over the final product? Like, that never happens. There's always somebody editing it. There's always somebody splicing it. You could have five hours of interview information that goes into a 10-minute clip. And I think providing people with a platform to share what they want in full was something that was really important to me and not have that media, you know, that hyper... Um, dramatization of an event with the dun dun music and the you know <laughs> well with your platform even you let me choose my title and I I'm like I don't know what what do I do <laughs> you know and you like sent me all the notes beforehand well like the questions you had you sent me and like we kind of do things differently because we just like you know, we like to have these conversations and let them just like come out. And it's like, you know, but I appreciate your process of everything because you really made me feel involved in the process. Yeah, thank you. I think like one thing that all of us have in common is the fact that we've lost control over something in our lives. And for me at each step, what I've tried to build into the processes is a step where I give power and control back. So, you know, where you, you get to choose the time that we record. I'll send you the, the final product if you want. If you want additional edits, we can make additional edits. Like you choose the photo, you choose everything. Like I want to give people the, the power back that they never had. And for people who shared their their experiences to media organizations before I want this to be the standard by which victim survivors as well are, are spoken to are interviewed and are treated with respect I don't want to over dramatize you know I remember when you came on Tara you said that somebody had asked you to repeat what you'd said with more um emotion or asked you to cry <laughs> like, like, I just want people to share it in their own words. Like, if you want to swear, swear. How do you feel? Get Let it rip, you know. And I know <laughs> yeah. that you've got that in, in your invite as well, and I thought that was incredible because it's just let's not censor this. It's already a difficult topic to talk about. Um, saying an F-bomb isn't the worst thing in the world. Like. <laughs> 
Well, considering the content, you know, considering the yeah. content, especially, yeah. It, well, it sounds like what you're doing is very much in line with what we're doing too, and and being able to give survivors a voice that they, you know, for their own narrative, because. <clears throat> Like you said, when media gets a hold of it, or it becomes over dramatized, or, um, you know, what is the word I'm looking for? Grammatical decay is set in. I apologize. Um, what? <laughs> Catastrophized is really, I think, what it is. It, 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 you know, it becomes a, a little bit of a circus. It's 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 been an interesting process, and I um. In the sense that, like, I did do a freedom of information request for my case files. I wanted to go over and sense check everything before I did the podcast, just making sure that I had all of my facts straight. Um, and it was heavily redacted. I really would, I really wanted to investigate and see what the interview questions were asked of him or what his statement was. And I wasn't able to get that without his permission. So it is a formal legal <laughs> document I get of his. Apparently, somehow he owns it. Um, so I could only get things that were pertaining to me. So my medical records, my th those different things were all I could get. I couldn't get that information. And also, I did not name him, and I still don't because there is a fear, and there was a wonderful uh, victim survivor and journalist, Nina Fennell, and another victim survivor of child sexual abuse, Grace Tame, who was a former Australian of the Year. Nina Fennell started what they've called the Let Us Speak or Let Her Speak campaign. And basically this happened during COVID, but there was a law or policy passed that basically stated that any victim survivor of a sexual-based crime was only able to name the perpetrator if they had a court order. And the reasoning behind that was so that I think policymakers and people around a big boardroom table, none of them had a maybe victim-led mindset. But... um. Basically, it was so that the, it would protect them from the the shame of being named in the media. And I think that it was very misguided and, and everything as well, but it means that I could be liable to go to court after somebody's been found guilty of the sexual assault against me if I say his name. You know, the Jeffrey Dahmer series is very popular right now on Netflix in the States. And almost like the glorification of the perpetrator is what comes out of these things. You know, people, oh, they romanticize the relationship with the serial killer or the offender, but no, but, but they're quick to, you know, excoriate or victim shame the victims, right? Yeah. And it's like, like that's a very backwards mentality. And it sounds like that is pretty common and prevalent across the world, really. Absolutely. And I think what you just said, like, about that defamation is these systems were designed by men, you know, for men primarily. And it's so difficult to get away from the patriarchy of it all that re-victimizes victims. And all it does is silence them. So all of a sudden you're in a situation, right, you've got horribly low sentences for sexual assault crimes. You're going to get victim blamed. You're going to get re-traumatized through that entire process for what gain at the end. And then additionally, if you speak about it or to say anything about it or for heavens, like, you know, we don't have um, public sex offender registry. So nobody knows that this guy is a sex offender against really? children. Really? He's got 15-year-old kids now. Like, what's stopping another situation from happening again? And you turn around and you go, what service does it have to the public 
to, to keep this quiet. And all it does and all the systems continue to do is shut down victim survivors. And you have to think about it. You know, you have to think about this as well as if somebody inadvertently identifies the person who offended against them, whether it be an ex-partner, for example, that we're also now potentially liable against lawsuits. And it's like there's so much that we have to yeah. do to make sure that we're all safe in order to speak up about something. And you're so right with, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, I've completely boycotted that. I will not watch it. And, you know, I still say to people when they talk about, in inverted commas, how good it is, name one oh victim. Gosh. Name one. Yeah. And they go, uh, uh. And it's just like, I think that's horrible. And we're the same with a serial killer that's recently passed away in Australia, Ivan Malat, who famously murdered backpackers um, throughout Australia. And that was one of the reasons as well that I started the podcast because it was just like everyone in Australia will know who that is. But if I said Gabor Neugebauer, Gabor Neugebauer or Anya Habshid to anybody, they would go, who? Like they're two of eight kind of thing, people, yeah. and there's obviously additional that there could be, but it's just so frustrating that the fight almost it seems like sometimes we go two steps forward and then 10 steps back when something like this comes forward. And you hear stories like that where it's just people consistently being re-victimised and not believed and, you know, it's just it's frustrating at times, but I do feel like we're making a really positive change as well. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. I mean, and it's <laughs> we're all part of a uh, a group of individuals that no one ever you know, really wants to be a part of, but we're all part of the Survivor Squad. Yeah, we're a part of the Survivor Squad. A hundred percent. And, I, you know, we were talking the other day as well about how important it is to have survivors there for survivors in this peer-to-peer -peer network. So I did start a survivor support network for that reason. And how nice is it just to chat with people who you no way have to justify your feelings to? <laughs> like, yeah. you can just be like, I'm not okay. And... Or this triggered me or something and you don't have to explain it in any way. It's just implicitly understood. Or you can yes. or you can have a sense of humor about it too. And laugh and be cheeky and nobody's gonna judge you for it. They're gonna be like, Yeah, that's where your way of coping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it's wonderful. Yeah. So 100%. good on you for good on you for, for bringing all this to light in your in your country and around the world and Thank you for being on the program. It's been such a, a pleasure to speak yeah. with you, Madeline. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Where can we find your socials, your podcast, everything? Yeah. So uh, the podcast is Reclaim Me. Uh, the Instagram is at Reclaim Me Pod. Uh, mine, Madeline Heather, is at MadHeat underscore. Um, I came up with that because it was like a DJ name when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> Mad heat fire emoji. <laughs> I love it. And it's not, um, it's at mad heat underscore on Twitter um, and the same on TikTok. Um, but yeah, if you head to any of those, you'll be able to to get in contact and you'll be able to find the survivor support network as well if that's something that you'd like to join. I love this. 
Hi there, it's just Maddie popping in because I wanted to clear up a few items as I misspoke or I've since learned some information about the case that I spoke about with Tara and Collier today. Now, the first one is that he did receive some sentencing considerations. So I believe that following good character references and following the fact that he did have a new dependent child or a pregnant partner, that that may have come into account in the leniency of the sentencing. Um, And he was also actually sentenced to four years and I think served two. So I don't know the exact months, but I believe that the initial sentence that he was given was actually four years, but obviously the time served was much lower than that. I did make reference as well to my blood alcohol levels being 0.08, but I've since actually reviewed the medical records and it was actually 0.15, which is double if not triple, sorry, the legal driving limit. Um, And that was taken a number of hours since or after the offense had occurred. So it's, it's, it is really, I think, poignant that Collier did mention that, you know, I, I could have died and this was a very serious potential alcohol poisoning, which it really definitely could have been. Um, Additionally, these are all my recollections um, and there may be, have been additional investigative measures that have occurred. There may be things that I have missed out while I'm recalling this, but this is me recalling an event or events that happened a long time ago. And I just wanted to make that clear that there's obviously parts of the investigation that I'm not privy to. And I guess that if there's any investigators listening that might've been involved in the case, I don't want to make people feel that I believe they didn't do their job or that they didn't do a good job. Um, It's just my recollections and my experiences. And just the final thing I wanted to mention, which is pretty amazing, is that Nina Fennell, who I mentioned, who led and spearheaded the Let Her Speak, Let Us Speak campaign, um, has now managed to implement nationwide, I believe in most states, change, which means that I can now say the offender's name. And I can happily say that the man who offended against me was named Christopher Lorden. And I guess if you're in the vicinity of somebody with that name, it might be worth maybe having a look into them and making sure that your children aren't going to sleep over at his house. So thank you so much for listening. On that note, survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.